0: This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is November 11 2021. On today's program, COP26, the UN's Global Conference on Climate Change and the need for global action from, well, everyone, including investors. The stakes cannot be higher. And with each passing year, the urgency grows, as does the need for actions to match words and for the world to pull together. It's a sentiment we've heard on this program all year. And in a sense, all climate conversations have led us to these two weeks in Glasgow. Whether it was from Chris Aylman, CIO of CalPERS.
1: I guess I've been on Wall Street too long. Talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than the words. Countries can make bold efforts. But they're not going to mean anything if they become start and stop, start and stop.
0: Matthew Lightwood, director of risk solutions at Conning. Much will depend on exactly what concrete plans are agreed and on what timeline those things are going to happen. Is it going to be action or is it just going to be more words? I think it wouldn't surprise me to see COP26 as a pivot point where we start to see some much more significant repricing of assets based on climate risks, and it'll be very interesting to see how that unfolds. Or our conversation on the most recent episode as we looked ahead to COP26 with high-level climate champion Gonzalo Munoz. In these almost three
2: years that I've been in the role, I learned to value and understand the role of these conversations and how much they help us to build the right narrative, the right metrics, the, the process, the methodology that, that is needed to deal with one of the most challenging crises the, of human history. Even like the trajectory that I have to follow will be probably the most epic challenge that we will ever face because it's not about few, smart, talented people, whatever. Reaching the moon, in this case, will require all of us.
0: Radical collaboration. It's not something we citizens of the planet Earth have excelled at. Though, if there is a bright side to the COVID-19 pandemic, it's that we've seen we are capable of rising to the occasion. But what has it been like to be at a COP, to be at this particular COP, which seems to have so much riding on it? Was it actually different?
1: One thing being a COP newbie, is that I didn't realize just how different this COP um, is in terms of just the, the the sheer number of people coming from private finance and from businesses and so forth. That's
0: MSCI's head of ESG research, Linda Elling Lee. We checked in with Linda throughout her time in Glasgow to get a sense of reaction on the ground as it happened.
1: Actually, last night I was at a dinner with someone um, who for whom this is now um, her 13th COP. <laughs> so they definitely have a, a totally different take on, on, on what's going on. So my understanding is that with this one, um, there is also a lot more front-loading of announcements um, and accomplishments and commitments rather than um, a lot of the negotiations happening for over the two weeks and then most of the commitments coming at the end. As you
0: might imagine, Linda found that those dinners, the cocktail events, and Basically, all of the non-formal cop session conversations, they play a very large role in moving things forward. They always do. But they also represented another reason that this particular cop felt different.
1: Well, I think this is clearly a very exciting time, um, not just for the world, but I think for a lot of uh, people personally, because this is probably their first in-person conference, you know, post the pandemic. I am surprised in some ways at how many people have made the trip um, to Glasgow and into the UK from elsewhere. Um, I think that there is a sense that showing up actually in person and physically does send a, a big message often for many of the institutions um, that want to be contributing to um, solving the cl- climate crisis. I think that sending senior people of the various financial institutions has been a really important part of um, what some of the um, Glasgow fin- Financial Alliance for net zero. So Gfans, has been working on is to actually get c- that kind of show of commitment. So I think that's been really important just alongside the world leaders who are here.
0: All these world leaders and leaders of finance, they, they did release a lot of announcements, so many that we won't be able to cover them all today. Today, we'll focus on the role that private finance played at the conference and the inherent friction between developed and emerging parts of the world. We'll also talk about commitments to reduce methane emissions, the link between biodiversity and climate change, and one announcement— That was actually made before the conference even started. Though it did set up the kind of push pull I mentioned earlier between talk and action, as well as expectations for COP. I'm talking about the commitment from the G20 that called to end financial support for new coal fired plants in emerging markets, though not to end the use of coal inside the borders of the G20 themselves. And at COP, there was also a pledge to actually transition away from coal, though notably neither China or the U.S. were among the signers.
1: I think that the coal announcement is a completely emblematic of, of how people are feeling coming into this, because on the one hand, that's absolutely an important step to have committed to not fund uh, coal power plants um, outside of your country. Um, but on the other hand, some of the major countries, of course, um, that are reliant on coal um, have not made any kind of move to, um, to actually uh, take coal out of their uh, energy mix in, in the nearer term than what they've already said. So I think that coming into COP26 on the backs of um, G20, I think the expectations were a little mixed and maybe even trended a little bit negative, um, in part because I think that, that none of the countries really came out with anything um, big and ambitious in terms of new targets um, for for country reduction. And I think that in particular, I think um, there's been a focus on China sticking with their Uh, announcement of being net zero in 2060. I think that there was a little bit of expectation that perhaps they would announce something more ambitious.
2: You got the 40 or so countries that agreed to actually phase out coal domestically, albeit not that fast.
0: That's Megan Twing-Eastman, Research Editorial Director at MSCI.
2: There were some key players in there like Poland, but then you were missing the US, India, China, Australia and Russia which together are three quarters of the world's coal consumption so that that poses an interesting dilemma for investors because you've got a lot of investors with net zero commitments you know there were a bunch more of those that came out of the COP meetings and leading up to COP and yet you've got these big economies with lots of publicly traded companies uh, and lots of bonds in utilities that are coal fired. So what do you do then? Do you think about divesting those? That's probably the easiest way to getting your portfolio closer to net zero, but it doesn't actually change what's happening in the real world. If these countries don't actually phase out coal and do it fairly quickly, we're not going to get to 1.5. Uh, you know, all the commitments that were made at this COP did help bring down temperature projections of, of increase. If everybody follows through on the things they committed to do, which is a big if, uh, but without phasing out coal from these big economies, it, we're not going to get to one and a half. And then in a country like China, it's actually a huge portion of the coal, the fuel stock. Uh, and so phasing it out, even if they don't build any more new coal, phasing it out is going to take a lot of work. And if we don't address that, then at the end of the day, we're all subject to higher risk, and that includes the investors trying to to protect their own numbers and their own portfolios.
0: So while the coal agreement coming out of the G20 may have set an apt, though ambivalent tone, as Linda finally got to her hotel around midnight, she was heartened by one thing, and that was the fact that she could turn on the TV.
1: This is really the first thing I I do when I get to the UK, and um, because I really love BBC News, I just think that the discussions are so much more nuanced. Generally, the reporting and and the angles are just less facile than than what we're used to um, in the U.S. Anyway, I just wanted to say something. I heart BBC.
0: I had to know more.
1: I think they just ha- ask harder questions of their interviewees. So, you know, when they have experts on to talk about, for example, this methane rule that came out or this commitment to eliminate methane, you know, I think that that's the sort of thing where I think that most people... Um, in the public don't really understand what methane is um, and how that compares with carbon um, emissions and um, and what you're supposed to do about it and what the commitment actually is. I, I feel like they really kind of dug into it in terms of um, just a little bit more of the science behind it and why it's important and, and why I think it's actually a, a very doable goal.
0: Challenge accepted. Let's talk about the pledge that calls for reducing methane emissions 30% by the year 2030. Now, to Linda's point, the public debate has stayed simple. It's tended to focus on carbon emissions. But cutting methane emissions is also critical.
2: The reason methane is so important is that it's many times more potent of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So a ton of CO2 and a ton of methane are going to have a really different impact on the warming of the planet. I think the new pledge is encouraging because, okay, it's harder to control methane from cattle as long as you continue to eat meat. But if we talk about methane from uh, gas extraction and processing, a lot of what's going into the atmosphere is just leaks. And the fixes are actually not that difficult or even that expensive. It's just a matter of having the right incentive to do something about it. So I I actually feel really encouraged by the new methane pledge that's come out of COP26 with a, a load of countries responsible for a lot of methane getting on board to cut it.
0: The pledges and announcements were streaming out of Scotland. Linda's first day on the ground happened to be finance day.
1: So Finance Day was definitely a big bang, and I think there was a lot of excitement, and obviously it's partly because the people that we talk to um, in the investment space are excited about finance and, and so forth. But definitely yesterday was it was a huge amount of excitement um, with all the business leaders and investment leaders. And of course, the um, Mark Carney's um, launch of the the Glasgow Financial uh, Alliance for net zero. So the big headline was the one hundred and thirty trillion dollars that have committed to align with net zero. And then of course, um, very quickly followed by a lot of skepticism, there's a lot of questioning of that number. So there's a lot of conversations about what does that mean? Is it additional money? If it's not additional money, what's actually shifting? Is there um, some sort of um, double counting? Is it inflated? But you know, but the truth is that I think that um, as we talked about yesterday, I think Intentions do matter, and I do think that there are a lot of large institutions that have decided to show up in person to demonstrate that they're committed to making this happen. So whether or not you want to call it $130 trillion or some other number, um, we are talking about large institutions, financial institutions um, that are making commitments. And they're public commitments, and we'll just have to see whether or not, you know, everyone does their part to deliver.
0: You sound a lot more optimistic today than you did yesterday, frankly.
1: (laughs) You think so? (laughs)
0: The other voice you heard there was Perspective's co-producer, Joe Colavecchio. And he was right. Linda, a self-described cynic, seemed to have packed her rose-colored glasses. Though, in true cynic form, she had her own spin on what was actually behind her view.
1: So, what's actually been kind of remarkable, everyone says, is that I've been in Glasgow for two days, and it's been totally sunny. And everyone says, this is extremely (laughs) unusual. And maybe I won't sound quite as uh, positive tomorrow once it starts raining. It
0: is true that weather can have a huge effect on people's moods, but there was a bit more to this story, which we learned as Linda spoke with some people at the dinner that followed finance day.
1: So interestingly, I mean, I think that the people I was at dinner with were more policy types who have been um, doing this for a while, and I think that they're certainly excited just because uh, you know they've been looking at climate finance for a long time. These are the sort of people who are very focused on that hundred billion dollar you know pledge that that developed countries are supposed to be um, have already delivered and haven't yet. But I think that they're starting to 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 feel like that that's going to move. Their optimism, I feel like, gave me a little bit more hope since they've been around the blog many more times. Um, I also met with some clients who had signed up for alliances of various types, um, and I think that there was a general feeling of urgency and um, and really needing to come up with some way to deliver on their commitments. And so we spent a lot of time talking about various climate related analytics that can help. Um, investors really better identify and um and start to kind of map out a roadmap of how they how it is that they're going to deliver on their commitments which will all be coming up you know quite soon. There are these interim targets of twenty thirty, twenty twenty five. Um and so I think that the the fact that uh, many of these institutions are starting to think about this you know, so immediately after the commitments that were being made uh, earlier this week, I I do feel uh, a sense of optimism that this isn't really just empty words.
0: The reactions to the financial commitments and the amounts and speed of money moving from the world's richer to the poorer nations, well, they weren't all so sunny. From articles in the press to protests in the streets, people were making their dissatisfaction known. And this was a storyline that wouldn't go away throughout the conference. It remained front and center as the week progressed, and as it culminated with Friday sessions, which were, interestingly enough, centered around the theme of youth empowerment.
1: So today was the Youth and Empowerment Day. Um, I did manage to get into the Blue Zone finally, and many of the formal programs really were showcasing uh, youth from around the world in terms of best practices and the need for education and communication. Um, so those were those were interesting, but um, I didn't really attend a lot of the formal program because I wanted to have a chance to wander around some of the booths it is set up like a big trade show where many of the countries and many NGOs actually have their own booth and they are they host site events that are uh, educational they there are sometimes panels there's sometimes presentations probably the most interesting one i wandered into was one that was trying to get a project off the ground to plant mangroves this is part of the, the Cong- in the congo basin and that would be a project to um, that could to act as a carbon sink, essentially. Um, they weren't really far along um, yet um, to be able to talk about the particulars of whether it could be converted into voluntary carbon credits and to what extent, but that was really kind of the goal. So it was very interesting to kind of see it at its early stages and the kind of questions that um, a lot of the attendees had for them.
0: And then it got even more interesting.
1: You know, on the way out, I had to run to a meeting, and it was... <laughs> it was not my best moment in terms of navigation. Um Google Maps took me straight into a protest and it really literally I got caught up in the middle of a protest. This is this was a relatively large protest. I thought that there would be a lot of uh, high schoolers and college students and and post graduates and and generally kind of the angry youth that that uh, that you've been seeing on television. Um but actually there were quite a diversity of age and demographics. And in fact, there were a lot of families with small kids um, with their signs. And it reminded me quite a lot of the climate protests that we've had also in New York City and in Washington, D.C., where I had also taken my children. And it was, um, you know, quite a good atmosphere. In general, it was really um, quite a positive um, atmosphere of really just asking, asking the world's policymakers to do more.
0: Then Friday turned to Saturday. Nature Day at the conference. It was a day Linda was looking forward to as it focused on another overlooked part of the climate change effort preservation of the natural world and maintaining biodiversity. We asked Megan to talk about this connection.
2: There's actually no way to prevent the kind of climate change that we're talking about without preserving nature as a carbon sink, but also because there's this really complex interrelationship between the climate and nature. So you look, for example, at deforestation, which of course removes trees' ability to absorb carbon, but it also affects the regional climate, rainfall and soil health and that sort of thing. So biodiversity and the health of nature and climate change are really closely intertwined and Climate change can make uh, biodiversity loss worse by harming habitats. And loss of biodiversity, loss of nature, deforestation, all those things can also exacerbate climate change. Protecting that it has been seen uh, maybe up until now in a lot of circles as a separate issue somehow from climate change. But I've noticed in the discussions that are happening at the policy level, but also amongst our clients in the investment world and in the corporate world, that they're increasingly being talked to, uh, talked about as not one of the same, but inseparable. And the way that they're going to impact investments, as well as the way they impact the larger world, uh, is also inseparable. We've talked about biodiversity and land use in the investment context for a long time, years and years at MSCI, for the industries that have a lot of impact on these things, like like mining and extractives, where it's really Kind of easy to see if you dig a mine or you you put in a dam and and uh, inundate an entire valley somewhere that that's going to have an impact on the ecosystem. Uh, But we're increasingly talking about things like food and agriculture, which which impact ecosystems, but also are incredibly at risk in the future from these losses because they're so dependent on healthy environments, pollinators, soil health, rainfall, all of that stuff, to be able to produce these things that we we all need.
0: Getting back to Glasgow, though, Saturday there was not only Nature Day. Saturday was also the day of what was billed as the big protest.
1: There's supposed to be about 100,000 people who are going to be in central Glasgow. So that is going to be a very big challenge for me logistically because I'm staying outside of town. Um, I am supposed to get into town today for an event that's hosted by the UK Department for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs. It's called DEFRA. Um, And the event is uh, meant to showcase companies that have joined a coalition in support of um, Nature Positive 2030. This is the global goal to halt and reverse the catastrophic loss of nature worldwide. So getting to the event was in itself interesting. uh, And I was having a lot of trouble um, getting a car to take me to at least the train station. Um, But I finally did get uh, a taxi driver to get me closer to Glasgow.
0: And this cab driver, like many of his brethren worldwide, he had some opinions.
1: So this taxi driver was really angry about all of the jet setters coming to COP. While drivers like him, who are locals, are not actually allowed to benefit from the business because they can't even go and pick up passengers to take them into Glasgow. So he told me that there were over 70 private jets that have landed in Glasgow Airport earlier this week. Um, These are people who are coming and telling people like him that they should change their behavior in the name of climate protection. So I think uh, he was not super impressed by COP26, let's put it that way.
0: When Linda arrived at the event, she was instantly rewarded because she got to hear Al Gore speak. This is someone she has said before she views as being ahead of his time in terms of climate change. Mr. Gore was talking this time about the synergies and the mutual dependence of nature to businesses, specifically a number of programs where different companies like Sainsbury's, the UK supermarket, as well as water companies such as Severn Trent, they've been working on ways to become what's known as nature positive. As for the rest of the event...
1: Someone called it kind of a speed dating <laughs> on nature projects uh, with uh, a number of companies. Many of them are, are sort of UK based companies. In my side conversations, Uh, were with a number of attendees that are involved in trying to design metrics that can be useful for companies and for investors when it comes to measuring um, their impact on on nature. And that's just a really particularly challenging area, um, even though it's also a very exciting one at the moment, um, because we don't really currently know how to measure Nature and the impact on nature, which is actually far more challenging than, than carbon and measuring emissions, because there's not a common unit. At least with emissions, you, you can you can um, you're talking about a unit um, that can be common across lots of different business activities. But um, you know, one of the mantra here is is that a, a tree is not just a tree, and and everyone kept talking about you know the right tree in the right place is actually what what. Um, we should be shooting for, because the value of a tree, you know, whether it's to climate mitigation or to climate adaptation, as well as to other co-benefits, such as increased biodiversity and soil quality, etc., those are simply not comparable. So this is something that Uh, members of MSCI's research team have also been working on, um, and we have also been contributing to the work of the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, which is an initiative that is trying to model itself um, after the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which has been so helpful in getting setting some sort of globally consistent guideline uh, for companies to disclose on um on on climate risk and and in this case, of course, it would be for um, impact on nature and, and biodiversity risk there are really a, a number of leading companies uh, that are trying very hard to put this on their business agenda, put this on their business strategy, but I think measuring it and being able to to sh- track progress and really be able to communicate that to, to stakeholders and, and build it into their business case, that is really, um, I think, um, an area that we're all going to have to work on in the next couple of years.
0: So much of the conversation around investors and climate change comes down to the ability to gather, parse, and interpret good data and questions of whether it is nobler to engage with the so-called dirtier parts of your portfolio or simply divest and walk away. This even came up earlier in this program, when Megan was talking about the coal question. And it came up for Linda at an MSCI event that was held at the Blair Estate, a stunning 900-year-old Scottish castle.
1: We hosted a number of panels and, you know, all along with other institutions, and um, and we really looked at a, a number of different topics around the net zero alignment. So my panel was really looking at the role of capital in the net zero revolution, um, and it was supposed to be really looking more at kind of what are different um, approaches to aligning the portfolio with net zero. Um, and then it turned into a little bit of a, um, a debate around implied temperature. Rise. So there is this kind of trade off one makes between having a consistent measure across a portfolio um, versus uh, maybe if the danger of people interpreting it too simplistically and saying that, you know, anything above a certain temperature should be divested. And that's certainly not um, the equivalent. You know, I think that when we put out a a temperature measure, the temperature, implied temperature rise for uh, a company or a portfolio, it's really, it's an informational tool, right? To be able to kind of look at your portfolio, be understand where that alignment is. So it was a really rich and interesting debate.
0: So then are people there at the conference, They seem more focused, like you're saying, on divestment versus engagement. Is that accurate or is there talk about the engagement uh, portion as well?
1: I think people are focused on engagement and maybe they're a little frustrated by the fact that the engagement story um, or the transitioning story gets lost um, because it's, it's so much less uh, compelling as a story, in a way, right? And I think that that I think that that a lot of the investors and and asset owners are concerned that there is a little bit more of a rush to exclude or divest, um, rather than trying to do that harder work of engaging and transitioning and 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 so forth, and 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 actually really applying the pressure of the capital to to transition these companies.
0: How successful was COP twenty six? That's not something we can answer here for two reasons. First of all, it's still happening as I record. And secondly, we just don't know how much of the talk, the pledges and commitments, how much they will translate into action. We may not really know the answer to that question until we get a lot closer to the year 2030, which will be here before we know it. But as Linda reported over her week in Glasgow, it does seem that the right conversations are happening. We're having conversations around moving away from coal, reducing methane emissions and deforestation. We're recognizing the link between biodiversity and climate change, and last but certainly not least, the vital role that investors can play in all this. We'll give Megan the last word.
2: Maybe the thing I feel most optimistic about coming out of this is how present the investment industry was and is at the COP. And yes, there has been criticism on the math of how much assets under management are committed to net zero and what those net zero commitments really mean and can they be executed and all of that. But we're seeing mobilization of private capital in a way that we haven't seen before, And that does give me hope that even when we've got things like these big coal economies not agreeing to phase it out, that maybe the investors will drive it anyway.
0: That's all for this week. Our thanks to Linda and Megan and to all of you for listening. Next up on Perspectives, we'll let a little bit of time pass after the end of COP so that folks can digest everything that's happened the last couple of weeks and then We'll ask a couple of them on to share what they think it all may really mean, and where the investment industry is focused as we approach the end of 2021. Until then, I'm your host Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe here.